Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today is Friday, February 28th, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian. This is a bonus episode of the Nerdcast featuring an interview with former Clinton White House political director Doug Sosnick, whose political insights are a big deal in Washington. Doug will walk us through his 2018 memo entitled Politics in the Age of Trump. You can read the full analysis on Politico.com. Now, these memos aren't widely publicized, but they play an important role in influencing thinking about the political landscape in advance of midterm and presidential elections. And to join us today, we have, of course, Nerdcast regular Nancy Cook. Hey, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. And a special Nerdcast treat, a first-time Nerdcast rookie down from his fearsome glass-enclosed office, the founder of Politico, John Harris. Thank you, Charlie. I've never been invited before, I should just point (laughs) out. I'm always happy to come. Well, you better perform today, then. And uh, we're also thrilled to have Doug Sosnick here. Hey, Doug. Great to be here. It's the first time I've ever run with the nerds. (laughs) Doug, so I've read the, uh, you know, this new memo, The Politics in the Age of Trump, and it's really fascinating. I wonder if you could walk us through from, from, from the beginning of it, where you talk a little bit about your, your overview of the 2018 election, and, and you talk about some of the factors that could make this the fourth midterm wave election, big, big turnover midterm wave election in a row. What has increasingly happened in our country is that, that presidential election cycles are different than off-year election cycles. So not only have we had three wave election cycles in a row, but the last three midterm elections was a repudiation of how the public had voted in the previous presidential elections. So we're walking into the 2018 midterm elections with a precedent of, of the off-year uh, being really great for the party that's in power. And the question is going to be, for most people, I think Democrats are going to have a good year. The question is, is it going to be a good year for Democrats? Is it going to be a great year for Democrats? Or can this be another tsunami kind of election? And I think the signals right now are mixed uh, on what, uh, what's going to happen. You, you do have a section on uh, the, the structure of the election cycle being unfavorable to Democrats. What, what, what is the downside then for Democrats of this cycle? Well, the, the, the uh, structure at the federal level is really difficult for Democrats. At the state and local level, it's, I think, a really great opportunity for Democrats to undo the political problems that began in this decade in the 2010 midterm elections. At the federal level, the structure of the cycle is bad for Democrats. There are uh, 26 Democrats seats that are up uh, this year, and there are only eight Republican seats that are up uh, this year, and uh, most of the Republican seats are safe. Donald Trump carried 10 of the 26 Democratic seats that are on the ballot, five of which he carried by more than 18 percent of the of the, uh, the total. And so it's a bad map in the Senate. And in the House, through reapportionment redistricting, there, there are just aren't the number of swing seats that there were in the past. And so it makes it more difficult 
to run the table when there are fewer competitive races. At the state level, it's a completely different matter. It's a huge opportunity for Democrats to regain the losses of 2010. In terms of state and local power in this country, I think the 2010 election was the single most important election for this decade. And for Democrats at the state and local level, this has been a lost decade. Democrats in 2010 lost six Senate seats, 63 House seats, six governors, and 729 state legislative seats. And the biggest problem for Democrats was that was the cycle before reapportionment and redistricting. And so because of that, this has been a lost decade for, de for Democrats uh, in terms of being able to take back the House because there are far fewer uh, seats due to gerrymandering. Uh, and, and we've lost our farm system of candidates who could move up to the higher levels because they were defeated in these lower offices. One thing I'm curious about, just to, I cover the White House here, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I'm curious about the Trump effect on these midterms. You know, in one of the slides, you talk about how, uh, you know, there's 10 um, Democratic senators up in 2018 in states that Trump won. Can you talk a little bit about how the presidency and, the, you know, sort of the first year of the presidency is going to impact uh, those Senate races? Well, you don't know for sure. But I mean, one of the trends that's been interesting in politics is back uh, even as recently as a decade ago, three of the most Republican states in the country, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, had six Democratic senators representing those three Republican states. We are now at a point where 85 out of 100 United States senators are of the same party of the presidential candidate who carried their state in 2016. So there's there's much more of a linkage now between how people vote at the top of the ticket and how they vote um, in, in down ticket in other elections. But the trends that we've seen this since the turn of the century in midterm elections is the president the presidency has not been transferable when they're not on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So in the case of of Obama in 10 and Obama in 14, he wasn't able, not being on the ballot, to transfer his popularity to Democratic candidates. But we, what we have seen with Bush in 06, while he wasn't on the ballot, he really drove the voting in 2006, which was a, a wave election for Democrats. So there's been no evidence uh, of transferability for a, a president um, down ticket when he's not on the ballot, but 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 has been proven to be a negative, which was the case that not only in 2006 with Bush, but also 2010 with Obama and 2014 with Obama, in which in, in 10 and 14 with Obama, it, it was largely on health care and the negative you know energy around that for Republicans that they were able to have two wave elections in a row. Doug, to follow on Nancy's question, if you're one of those Democrats in a kind of an uphill uh, state or district uh, that that uh, trends Republican. How much do you talk about Trump? I've heard different versions of this. One says talk about Trump a lot. Uh, Democrats and independent voters can't stand him, and this is how you energize that vote and get a high turnout. I've heard another argument says, look, everybody knows what they think about Trump, and they know you as a Democrat aren't Trump. You got to not talk about Trump. Let cable TV talk about Trump. You talk about yourself and something else. Obviously, it depends on where exactly you're running and the particular circumstances. But which side do you think is more right? Talk a lot about Trump to activate, or don't talk about Trump uh, to because you don't need to. You need to sell yourself. So, one of the great riddles, one of the great unsolved riddles in American politics so far, 
which, by the way, would be a great article for Politico. Is, <laughs> Can you do it by next week? Is how do you make the best case against Trump? And I believe that the best case to make – so the three kinds of people, right? There are people that love Trump. There are people that hate Trump. And then there are civilians who are conflicted. So for the love Trump, hate Trump, doesn't matter, they're, they're done. But for the people in the middle who are conflicted a little, I think the only way you can talk about Trump is by, when you make the Trump argument, or the counter argument against Trump, it has to be in the context of what he's doing and how it affects people in their lives and nothing else. But back to your sp- specific question, if I were running a campaign for a Democratic candidate in a red state, how would I manage the Trump issue? I would do it twofold. I would do what I call above the table and below the table. Below the table, which is not for mass consumption, I would go hard about Trump and I would make him the driver to motivate people to vote. The real question, I think, in 2018 is going to be who votes? And if you know who votes, I can tell you how they're going to vote if I know who votes. And so uh, there's no question based on the 2017 elections and the three or four specials in 2018 that Democrats are highly motivated to turn out to vote against Trump. And particularly amongst African-Americans in the 2017 Virginia races, young people and suburban women in particular. So for the people who are anti-Trump, I would be, all I would be doing is talking about Trump, but it would be through non-broadcast means and be more targeted. On the broadcast above the table, talking to, to, to more people, I would, I would try to make it a, more about a localized race and about who I am and what I'm trying to do for the state. So I would try to have it. So when you ask me the question, my answer is I would do both, but I would, the tactics of how I would do both would vary based on who I'm trying to talk to. Can you uh, expand on the, the idea that you just mentioned? I'm sort of fascinated by this, the idea of the cohort in the middle, the, yeah, the, the, the civilians mm-hmm. that occupy this demilitarized zone where they're not obsessed as the right or the left is with Trump. How big is – like just roughly speaking, how big is that cohort? Well, what happened with, with Obama, which is even more true with Trump, is Obama almost without exception – throughout his eight years of presidency, never went below 40% in the polls and never went above 55%. So he had a very narrow band. Trump is even a narrower band. When he's mostly, I would say, in the you know, mid to high 30s, maybe up occasionally to the low 40s, and a pretty solid, consistent 55%, most of it strong, by the way, opposed to Trump. And so I don't think Trump can win in a two-way race. But I think in a three-way race, where if you go back to, back to when John and I were in politics, well, you guys weren't even born probably, um, you know, Clinton got elected in, in 92 with 42, 43 percent of the vote. And so I think Trump can get to uh, 42, 43 percent of the vote, which is really a recipe for disaster in a two-person race. But in a three-person race, it, it can be winnable. And so I would say if you unpack the Trump voter, there's probably 25 28 percent that's just all in and then there's probably or maybe 30 but then there's that 30 to say 42 range where i would characterize them as saying basically they like a lot of his policies but they don't like the tweets and they're uncomfortable with them a lot of other things and so they're conflicted between the fact that a lot of what he's doing they they like and part of it's just stylistically where he's taken on the system and part of it are his policies. But, they, but he makes them personally uncomfortable. And so when he does things 
that appeal to the policy side or changing the status quo, that's where that number moves up into the low 40s even. But when he's being Trump unplugged, tweeting and saying things and embarrassing people, that's when that number goes down. I think to me, the suburbs suburbs are where the midterms will be won and lost and also the presidential election. But in particular, to me, I'm obsessed with the idea. And tell me if this is total BS and I'm way off the mark or not. I think that the biggest problem facing the Republican Party, you know, in in electoral uh, context is the rapid corrosion of the southern Republican suburbs, meaning the old line suburbs, they're all gone. They, they're all either totally blue or mostly blue by now, the suburbs of the Northeast and the Midwest. But what's really dangerous uh, and almost fatal to the Republican brand is the idea that the Atlanta suburbs are beginning to, to uh, spiral out of the Republican orbit. The Texas suburbs, the Houston, the Houston suburbs, uh, outside Richmond, Henrico County, Chesterfield County, those places, to me, what's left if they're gone of the Republican Party? Well, First of all, clearly suburban districts, which are largely in the sand belt, if you go from Virginia south through Georgia and all the way out to Arizona, <clears throat> those, those are largely big opportunities for Democrats. But you can't take the House back with just a suburban strategy. So during the Obama years, if you told me the following about a person, I can tell you how they're probably going to vote. Tell me their age, you tell me their race, and you tell me their gender. Now, With Trump's election, there's a fourth driver, which is a strong predictor of a person's voting, and that's their education. And so the demographic composition of a district that skews, say in the case for Republicans, if it skews to be older, less educated, um, and, and a larger percentage of white voters, that is the kind of district that Republicans are likely to perform well in. So put differently... Districts that have a large non-white population, uh, have a higher um, uh, education level, uh, are, are much more likely um, to be an opportunity for, for Democrats. And so in a sense, if you tell me the demographics of an area, I can tell you the possibilities or probability of a Democratic so, victory. So, Doug, you're a Democrat, obviously, but you're also somebody who uh, sort of looks at politics as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, independent of party. So if you were a, if there were a Republican version of Doug Sosnick, who is uh, facing this uh, kind of headwind mm-hmm. moment, what would that advice be? Well, In other words, how do Republicans mitigate mm-hmm. the the damage or avoid a blowout right. if these larger trends uh, uh, continue to hold? Right. So just to be clear, I am a Democrat, and I actually <laughs> spend lots of my time trying to help Democratic people become governors. Right. So, but you could give the advice yeah. for what the no, Republican would No, I'd be happy to. I just, mm-hmm. In full disclosure, <laughs> I, I'm not an objective participant in this cycle. I work for Democratic governors, and I want them to win. Back to your question, which is pretty, it's pretty much the same advice I would give a Democrat, you asked earlier, running in a red state. So if I were running a Republican campaign this year, first of all, I want to know what the demographics is are of, my, of the area, because that gives me a clue as to how I lean, how much this way or that way. But it's not going to change. In fact, I would do two things. Beneath the surface, out of the public view, I'm going to do everything possible to gin up my turnout. And that is generally a negative message and argument. And what the Republicans have done for this entire decade, and I don't see any indication they're going to drop it this cycle, is they use Nancy Pelosi 
and the liberal Democrats as their driver for turnout. So the, so the first thing, and, and again, the more the demographics of the district favor my guy as a Republican candidate, you know, the more important that's going to be. Or put differently, the, the more a district doesn't skew older, white, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, it, it's not educated, the more I've got to, or more educated, the more I've got to, on the public broadcast way, I've got to uh, communicate, I think, more of a localized approach to making the case of why to vote for me. So you ha- you, it's a false choice in a midterm uh, you have to do persuasion and you have to do turnout. One of the great debates in the 2016 campaign, and there was a conventional wisdom that set in that you only did turnout and you didn't do uh, persuasion, which I think was a false choice. And I think most people looking at the election after the fact, and you know, we, we go through what we call the who lost Vietnam. So we go back and say, like, how do we lose? How do we lose to this guy? And most of the analysis that I've seen would say at the end of the day, it was probably um, 70% persuasion or lack thereof and 30% turnout in terms of the shortfalls. They stopped polling in swing states because they yeah. thought they had the turnout yes. devices. They didn't care. Uh, they were turnout, turn- yeah. yes. So, so, you know, even in a presidential election, if you're trying to get to 270 t- electoral votes – what you do is, if you're a Democrat, you stack the most Democratic state at the top and the most Republican state at the bottom, and then you spend your time what we call the 50-yard line, which are the states electorally between, say, 220 and 280, and that's, in a close election, who decides where you win. So my list as a Democrat is the same list as the Republican. They just turn their list upside down. <laughs> and so when you're talking about trying to win an election in 2018, if you're a Republican dealing with Trump or a Democrat in a, in a red area, it's largely the same strategy tactically done in a different way, which is getting your base out and trying to have a persuasion for people that aren't. Doug, the governors are coming into town this weekend. The National Governors uh, Association, Politico, will be there in force. What are the governor's races that you're looking at most closely and why are they interesting to you? So – this, as I mentioned earlier, was the lost decade for Democrats. It was a lost decade because of our losses at the, at the governor's races in 2010. And in order for us to have a much better shot at drawing fairer lines for the House of Representatives, uh, we have to win these governor's races. And the same, this is the same group of states in 2018 that determined political power in our country in 2010. And so most of these states, over 40% of these states uh, have open seats. An overwhelming number of these states are Republican incumbents because of how well they did in 2010. So for me as a Democrat, there are 13 states in particular that I'm focused on in the 2018 governor's races. Five of them, uh, four of which are held by Republican governors, um, these are four industrial Midwestern states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and the fifth is Florida. The reason that these states are so important for Democrats is if we can win the governorships in these states and hold the one in Virginia, then we have a seat at the table at the reapportionment redistricting coming up. So that means that we can't be politically gerrymandered in these big industrial Midwest states and in Florida if we earn a seat at the table. So those five states are critical for Democrats uh, to not be shut out in the process in the next decade like we were in this current. Then there are, uh, there are eight other states 
that had the potential for Democrats to actually take control of, of all aspects of reapportionment so that we can draw lines that are more favorable to Democrats. Uh, and Wait, so, I thought Democrats were purer than snow on redistricting. Uh, well, we are. We don't have power. <laughs> <laughs> but there, so there, there, there are these other eight states that represent opportunities for Democrats to regain the, the, the levers of power. And remember, of all these states that are governor's races that are up this year, Hillary Clinton carried eight of them in the last elections. So this, this is the last huge, big opportunity for Democrats to be able to undo for the next decade the damage that was done in this decade because of the this class, the 2010 class, where we got wiped out. So let me follow on that. Let's imagine it's November of 2018 and Democrats really underperformed what you're expecting they do. And the question in Democratic circles is, oh, my gosh, we screwed up again. How did that happen? How do you think that would happen if it happened? Well, if that happened, we would say that. <laughs> and we're pretty experienced at that. <laughs> we, uh, we know, you know, we know how that feels. I, I, don't, I think there are, and there's lots of evidence, and I've outlined it in other things I've written, the party has moved to the left. The energy of the party, the ideas of the party, the areas that people, Democrats, have been elected, you know, representing their constituents. I think it is a, it, it is a move to the left that is not going to be significantly impacted by the outcome of the election. That's where the energy of the party is. That's where the ideas of the parties are. And and while if you if we lose or underperform, and there's an old saying, you know, life's not whether you win or lose, it's whether you beat the spread and expectations. But if it's perceived that we didn't beat the spread and we didn't uh, meet expectations, and that's one of the reasons I think it's important for everyone particularly Democrats, to see the structural challenges at the federal level in terms of the Senate map and the, few, and the fewer number of House seats. Um, uh, while there would be a reckoning if we don't beat the spread, to some extent I don't think it matters because the people who, who, people who are active in the party, who have true beliefs and have a theory of what they need going forward, that's not going to change based on a series of midterm election outcomes. Uh, I have about 100 more questions I want to ask, but I, I know we have to cut it short. Uh, thank you so much for taking out all this time and walking us through the landscape. Thank you for having me.